What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hatness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to help you to make workshops work. This is part one of a two-part show with Emma Ranato Obi, and we're going to talk about what we can learn about facilitation and coaching from the life of a monk. So listen to part one, the transition from being a monk to becoming a coach. Stay tuned. Hello, Anna. Hi. We were already getting so deep into the discussion, so I'm just hitting the record button now. Welcome on Great. the show. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to, uh, lovely to be with you, Miriam. Yeah. And I can't wait to share with the wider audience what you were already start telling me before in our warm-up kind of um, conversation. What you have learned from the 15 years of being a monk and uh, living in a monastery. And now you are an executive coach. Um, you travel through around Europe to deliver workshops for business, but also in school, as I just learned. So maybe you can tell us your story of how did you become a monk and yeah. why did you leave and what have you learned? Oh, great. So it's interesting. The way that I joined the monastery and the way that I left the monkhood is exactly the same. And I would say that that came through clarity. And uh, when I use that word clarity, I mean it's a sort of, um, it's not even a feeling or a word or an association. It's an immediate experience of knowing. And so I was in Australia and I needed a job and I, I ended up working for a drug rehabilitation center and they used meditation as part mm. of their healing means. And I was able to do that course. And once I did that course, it changed my life. Like a lot of people on that course were, were, were having suffering and pain, but I was laughing and they kept coming up to me and say, why are you laughing? I said, I found what I It's science. This is it. Totally understand what you're talking about, mm. right? And from that point onwards, there was a desire. I was all traveling already for two years, and I traveled another two years to get it out my system. But uh, during that time, I kept learning more and more about meditation, and it, there was just a pull to the monastery. It, it, it was a calling. There's no other word but calling. Mm. And so it was, it's as if I was grabbed by my hair and said, "Do this." And there was no thought, there was really no thought, no evaluation. I didn't know what I was really getting myself in for. I didn't know I was going to sort of join an SAS style monastery where, you know, you didn't handle money, no sex, no dancing, you know, get up at 4.30 in the morning, one breakfast, one main meal at 12 o'clock, not eating after midday, having a begging bowl, going out on the street, begging on the street. Wow. You know, it's just really... A hardcore life but I accepted it I cut my I can remember clearly cutting up my credit card just <laughs> cut, cutting it up and that was the life I, I didn't struggle to join there was no big dilemmas mm -hmm. I was going to become a monk and that was it and that's what I did and I fell in love I was at home in a, in a monastery in England for about um, eight or nine years and where I learned my skills and maybe we'll talk a bit about that later on yes but so after sort of eight or nine years I felt I needed to move on and so I Basically, I set myself up on my own. I left the monastery with, no, with nothing. You don't get any money or anything. And I just, with my begging bowl and a few boxes of books and a laptop, started again. Uh, I was lucky enough to go and live on an organic farm for a while. And then I ended up in Australia. So, and I traveled around Asia for four or five years, developed my own brand and all the rest of it. 
And part of being a monk in the tradition that I was in is that every year we would do a three month silent retreat, uh, group retreat. And uh, you could also do personal retreats. So when I was in Australia, the last year that I was a monk, I did a three month solitary retreat by myself in a sort of a motor home. Mm-hmm. So it gets very hot. It got very, very, very hot. It's like <laughs> 39 degrees, 40 degrees out in the Australian, Australian bush. Very hot. And um, I was a, alone and people brought me food once a week. I had a refrigerator, but basically I didn't, you don't speak to anybody. And it's a long time, three months, mm-hmm. you know, alone. So during the first week, because I'd been busy, I'd been on a six-month teaching tour and workshops and retreats and goodness knows whatever, I didn't go straight into the retreat. I let myself wind down. It was part of my practice and also something I still use now. You need, uh, if you've been very busy, you need to unwind a bit. Mm. So rather than shock myself, I slowed myself down into the retreat pace, right? Rather than a Mm. break. A lot of the things that we do in workshops can be breaks rather than winding people down into it, right? So anyway, so I, 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 um, wound myself down and I did that by reading a couple of books and one of them was about community about belonging and another one was about adult development and uh, that was about took me about a week to do that really just be very gentle with myself no demands no you've got to meditate 10 hours a day or anything like that but it slowly came and in that in that period basically I woke up one morning and it said it's over wow just like that it was that same clarity. I knew it was that same clarity. Now, I was in a really good position in Australia, I must say myself, you know, and I had really a lot of things that I, I wanted in my life in a way, mm-hmm. but that wasn't enough. That was not enough to say, go against that feeling. I've always trusted that feeling. I've always followed that in whatever I do. And so when that came up, I basically had to go with it. Now, I spent another few months doubting it, right? I made that account of conscious practice. I said, look, you go and have a look out where you're staying now. Like you could see for 50 miles, 100 miles with nothing. It was amazing bush. I mean, it's just, it's so enriching for the mind and the body. And I looked out and I said, you're giving this all up. And then I, then I had a month where I went back to where I was staying, which was also very beautiful. I said, do you understand you're giving all this up? And the answer was still yes. And that was it. So then I, mm. I, I had this process of disrobing. I made it a very public event because I worked with a lot of people and they all came. Some people were upset. A lot of people celebrated it. And we had this uh, ritual, which we all hopefully get onto as well, where I disrobed. And then I had a personal ritual as well, where I went down to the sea. And uh, I immediately went after I disrobed straight into the sea and had like a baptizing i don't mean that in a sort of religious mm-hmm. sense i mean in the sense of actually i'm making a distinction now between this life and the next life mm. and uh there's also a video online of me doing this trust experience where i where i did a blindfold hug and uh, shortly after that so in that movement of me stepping out of the monastic life i'd always been about how can i help people social impact and Part of this brand that I developed in the last five years was called Playful Monk. Uh, That's my hashtag, really. (laughs) (laughs) And so I developed this idea called Playful Monk in Residence, right? And in Australia, I was given much more freedom. I could go into companies because the people who are coming to my workshop would invite me in. So, you know, so my last experience of doing that was actually living in a hospital for a week. So I lived in a room. I had a room on a ward. 
in a hospital and I, I, tr I worked with the staff teaching them about mindfulness and I worked with mental health workers about sharing with them how to deal with trauma and ran a leadership workshops, community, lots and lots of things. It was mm -hmm. a complete program that was all printed out. So it was this playful monk in residence. And then as I was thinking about my transition, you know, what am I going to do? And I thought the age that I am, you know, I'm 51 now. Right? And I was thinking, so what, what can I do with all my experience that is going to have impact? Mm -hmm. right? And I thought leadership, executive coaching is just, it's just so needed. You know what I mean? And, I, and I've got a set of skills which are, if you like, a bit outside of the box. Now, it's been a very interesting journey for me, right? And only something I've, I've only really understood maybe with only in the last few months, actually. Like, mm -hmm. I've been thinking that I've been at the back of the queue, right, in terms of my skills, right? And I, and I, and I kept trying to work out, what is it? You know, what, why is this? But actually, I realized I'm at the top of the, I'm at the, top of the wave. Right? What made you so, realize that? Well, the more that I, the more that I sort of hear about the the corporate world, yeah, and what's not going on, and what could go on, and what mm -hmm. I consider normal, yeah, I was I was actually listening a bit last night to Adam Curtis's film called Hypernormalization, mm. you know, how society has been normalised, and he's got another one about how self was formed, and he was talking about how we've gone from needs to desire. Mm. I sort of lived in a in an environment where it was based on needs not desire. What do I need now? I need, I need clothing. Yeah. Yeah, I, need, I need food. Yeah, the monastery did run on a lot of money, sure, but it was by donation. Yeah, and there's a change that now I've had mm. to learn how to use that. You know, I, I now, obviously, I'm working by getting paid and there's, there's a certain framework that you have to adjust up to work in that as well. Mm. Right? Yeah, so I just, I suddenly started to see and, and the things that, you know, I listened to also a couple of very high-profile coaches the other day I've been doing this for years, right? I, I've trained to become a scrum master because I've got a geek background, I've got a degree in AI, and I've always loved technology and coding and all that stuff. And uh, I go to the scrum course. I'm the, I, I'm the one with the least amount of experience. Mm -hmm. By the end of the workshop, I'm, it's completely obvious to me. In fact, I, you know, I go to a lot of these play agile events because they're so fun and the people are so nice. Mm -hmm. But again, I keep hearing the same problem, though, even within the agile world around leadership and executives. You know, that's the number one thing I hear all the time. Why isn't this agile transformation going right? It's not going right because it's not being embodied by the leaders and the executives. I'm Rain. I'm from Experiential Learning. We facilitate programs for executives and we use Session Lab because it's a very easy tool to design a meeting, easy to share with your colleagues and get a script for the meeting in no time without too much hassle. So visit sessionlab.com and find out more yourself. And when they say it's not going right... What do they imagine? What do they picture as being right? Well, if you look at the Agile Manifesto mm -hmm. and you look at the way that, that, that what that's really saying, that's a completely shift in mindset, mm -hmm. right? That's not a hierarchy. It's self-organizing. It's not leadership in the traditional way we see it, as in, you know, there's somebody at the top. Actually, everybody's a leader. The Scrum Master is a sort of servant leader. That's why I was attracted to it, because I've always been a servant leader. Mm. I've always done what's the best for the group. You know, in, it might include safety and all the other bits and pieces. So the reason that it's sort of not 
going right is because it has to come all the way through the organization. It must be lived. It must be lived. It's not, it's not rocket science. I don't, I don't think it's rocket science, right? But I know from my own experience, because I've run very large events, you know, I've run family. When I was a monk, I ran family camps. They had a hundred people, 10 facilitators, you know, that's a lot of people to look after Mm. for for 10 days. And how do you do that? Right. Well, you can't be the leader. It's impossible. There's too many people. So you have to, create a space which is you know self-organizing which is empower people to do that including the young people yeah absolutely everybody everybody you know and then then actually the fact the 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 parents got jealous of my young person's retreat and then they wanted to do their own retreats i ran (laughs) adult creative retreats and then people wanted to know how did i how were the why were these programs so successful why was community built so quickly why was there so much love yeah and i think it's a mix between mindset and structure so yes you need to delegate you need to have the leader with the mindset to delegate to these co-facilitators but you also need to provide them with a structure in which they can use this responsibility without derailing exactly and you'll know as a facilitator yourself what we're really doing we're putting a lot of effort into structure Mm -hmm. we're looking at the tiny details maybe that people miss so that we can actually allow the people to have that experience yeah, and that's, that's the only thing that we actually can control is the yeah. structure and our own behavior. And I was, I'm just coming out of a training um, with internal facilitators. And the only message that I tried to bring across was we cannot fix them. If we have this one person who speaks too much, then there's nothing we can do about that except of building structures and giving them opportunities to speak less and listen more. Totally. But that's the beauty of working with young people. I learned all my skills working with young people because if you don't mind me swearing, young people are bullshit detectors, right? (laughs) And they, 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 they will say, and that's not their problem. That's the facilitator's problem. So if they say something, you have to respond to that. Right. And so like you, you create that, uh, and rather than saying, no, you're wrong or you're bad, or you, that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. What you want to do is create something which engages them, brings them into it. Like I, I always talk about this one kid because it was so amazing for me. Uh, one, one kid did not, young person, did not come to the whole retreat at mm. all, right? He was in his room. And I asked him at the end, what did you do? And he said, I was doing my homework because it was peace and quiet here. That's a result for oh. me. That's not, that's not, I didn't run the workshop right or... Right. And, and, and that, you know, so if you can create that atmosphere of, uh, of welcome, of acceptance, yeah. then there's something also these people are offering. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be difficult for you as a facilitator, for sure, but that's our job. Yeah. Right? We can actually uh, engage in that process and see what is it, what is it in ourselves that we don't like about that situation. Yes, and it brings me back, I would like to circle this back to something that you mentioned before about rituals. Because I have the impression that creating the space where these beautiful things can happen and where this shift in mindset hopefully also happens might have a lot to do with rituals that you create. Totally. So I I would say it it goes rituals and initiation. And and both of these things we've lost in society. And so society's had to recreate them or people have had to recreate them. So we have conventional rituals, I would say, like uh, brushing your teeth, 
maybe going for a meal, some, you know, and they're actually very powerful rituals. One of the, the oldest ritual is actually eating. Mm. It's why it's so powerful in terms of conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, if we eat together, we would we, 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 we create that. And so understanding about ritual and how to use that space is incredibly important. Right? And there's a, there's a whole load of, um, it's a big word, responsibility. So I don't mean mm-hmm. that in terms of burden. But I mean that in, in terms of really taking care of the space. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very attentive to this when I was working with the family camps and with the workshops that I do now. I want to know, you know, if you're going to do a ritual, then you need to know how to be a leader, a facilitator. But actually, yeah. it's ritual eldership. And, um, and we really need way more, way, way, way more people to be able to do this. If we're looking for sort of the transformations in our society, yeah, which are not based just on old, there's old rituals and initiations, yeah, which are sort of fine, but we, we've evolved in our own capacities, ego capacities, to mm. go slightly beyond those. So normally they're quite violent. You know, if you go to some tribes, they can be very, very violent. You know, there can also be a lot of drama and acting in it as well. But I think there's other ways we can do it now, you know, like men and fathers or, you know, like I just run a men's retreat. Yeah, and very, very, very powerful we created an initiation for one of the retreatants, mm-hmm. yeah, which is actually about becoming a full man, mm-hmm. yeah, an embodied, wise, caring, loving, vulnerable, passionate, powerful man. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, this is not gender related. It's, it's yeah, not yeah. male or female. It, it, it works all, all, on all aspects. I just wonder in which box or which definition, which label I can put on the concept of ritual. And I was thinking of a check-in. Is a check-in a ritual or what would make it a ritual? Yeah, see, that's the question. That's the question. What makes it a ritual? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the attention to the details. If you just go in and you go around the room and you say, oh, well, you know, how's it today? How's it for you? Mm-hmm. Probably not a ritual. But if you thought about the structure of it and how you take the check-in into something else and you're getting a flow, yeah, and you're, you're creating and supporting a space where people can transform, then you're starting to enter a ritual. You know, so, it's very different from a habit. Yeah. How would you facilitate that? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, and that would bring me on to sort of holding space mm-hmm. and present and your ability to really know yourself inside out. You need to really know yourself well so that you can hold the variations, the themes, the tones. For example, when I, 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 I used to facilitate, I went around colleges in England, further education colleges, which are vocational colleges, and I worked with all sorts of different young people. And sometimes these young people were very determined, particularly single mothers, to get a job, to get an education. And so I'd speak with hairdressers or something like that. They may not have eaten in the morning. They may have used their money to get onto the bus to get to college, but they may not have had enough money for food. Right? So if you go in there, you have a check-in, and, and I don't know, uh, Sarah's there, and Sarah says, um, well, you know, it was a, uh, I don't know, it was a really, I'm okay. Right? If you go, well, you know, you're not answering very well, you know, in your own mind, you've already messed up the space. Mm. And, okay. because you don't you don't know what it is so there you can actually start to steward it you see so you steward yourself and steward the space and then that's what allows people to be themselves and mm. that creates the ritual that creates the transformative space so you're implying or what i hear is yeah. that by 
controlling your own energy and reaction, non-verbal reaction to this person checking in yes. and not having the energy and positivity that you actually expect or hope yes. for. So yes. by controlling this energy, then you're holding the space and people will know and feel that they can be themselves and it's okay to check and say, okay. actually, I don't want to be here. Yeah. Okay. I like yeah. that. Very, very yeah. important to say, I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. important. If, yeah. if people can't say that, the space isn't safe enough. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Mireille Böhmer. We had a podcast, I think it was um, episode 30, and she starts with this fantastic exercise of having quadrants on the floor and participants can choose where they want to stand depending on to what extent they want to be there and to mm -hmm. what extent they're actually mentally present. Great. And then they can just see that, oh, maybe most of us don't want to be here and actually we're not mentally here. And then it's something you can address. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it's what is, what, what is present. What is yeah. actually present? Not your yes. idea of the workshop, but this is what's present. Thank you for staying tuned and listening to the show. I appreciate your attention as I know how busy you are. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe and engage by sharing your comments and thoughts and visit workshops.work to download the one-page summary. I'm looking forward to seeing you back at the next episode and I wish you a fruitful day.